You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Hello, I'm Mirella Amato. Welcome to Hot Plate, a post-foodie podcast. This season, we examine the impact COVID has had on every aspect of our food system, all the way from farm to table. We'll look at how things have changed and try to untangle what's going on behind the scenes so that we can strengthen our connection to our food. In this episode, dairy dumping and how migrant workers do the dirty work. We're talking agriculture. Hi, Mirella. How are you? I am well. So what was the last thing you ate? The last thing I ate was actually a big salad. It was lunch. And I like had a little, green salad? Yeah, yeah. But it was little bits of things. It was like little bits of chopped veg, one skewer of leftover chicken, right? I just cut it all up and put it into a giant salad. I had a few spears of fresh asparagus. Very nice. Oh. I had, remarkably, a big yes. salad. And, and noted about how you can be quite satisfied with a pile of vegetables. What did you have? I'm having a chocolate with, the, with caramel and sea salt. And right. one of my current favorite teas, which is uh, a vanilla lavender red bush tea. Oh. And it sounds like a delicious. lot, but it is, yeah, it's not a lot. It's just so soothing. Together, it's working. Amazing. As we've mentioned before, we're using this season of the podcast to really talk about the impact of COVID on our food system. Yes. And that conversation is going to spread right from field all the way to the plate. Uh, and so, of course, it starts with a focus on agriculture. Our first stop is going to be to talk about waste and food waste, right? I'm sure that everybody, there was lots of photos and images uh, about the amount of food that was being wasted on farms or in processing facilities because we were no longer, you know, out in the public at restaurants, stadiums, sports games, that kind of thing. I have to say, I, I was aware of the dairy dumping. I had read articles about that and yeah. I guess specifically, you know, with around the, the coffee shops and things like that. I don't know. It was right. very much on my radar. But what I did not realize until recently and what what has upset me and I've been thinking a lot about is the uh, number of animals mm. that uh, had to be put down. Right. And um, the numbers in Canada certainly are hundreds of thousands of animals, right. predominantly chickens and pigs. And pigs. Yeah. Well, and it it is, I get that. It is a really like, it's a really garish bit of evidence of our use of our position on the food chain, right? Uh, yeah. really, it really is. It really is very uh, vivid and in our faces when these types of decisions have to get made. Yeah. And from the outside, it, f it feels very, you know, trans, I mean, it's, it's a business decision. It feels very transactional, mm -hmm. you know, like this is too many chickens. No one is buying chickens. I'm going to, you know, these thousands of chicken, chickens, chickens, these hundreds right. of thousands of chickens have to, have to die. Uh, yeah. Or these, you know, these tens of thousands of, of pigs. And, you know, I've, I've been around chickens. I've been around pigs. Uh, they are not pleasant animals, right? <laughs> but they're, they're alive. Yeah, you know, of course. They are, I, I don't know. I just, it really, my heart sank and mm -hmm. it, it's been haunting me. Well, it is. Um, and when, like, 
when we dig around there to figure out what was behind all of that, right? To, because, of course, the first thought is, like, couldn't they have been repurposed? Couldn't, you know, they have been shared uh, simultaneously? We hear about how food insecurity is through the roof. Like, you yeah. know, to have those two sets of circumstances simultaneously existing feels crazy. Um, but, but, you, but you see, as we sort of started digging around to figure out how these connections could be made, why they weren't made, uh, we unraveled. We unraveled a whole other conversation, uh, yeah. right about uh, about industrial uh, farming, about industrial raising animals, and about this whole issue of supply management. But so, for listeners, what we're talking about here is that there is some there's a, a sort of a, a lever, a mechanism, a program called supply management, uh, and essentially what it does is monitors. Uh, retail or public consumption of a few things. It's eggs, chickens, and dairy. And it manages production in relationship to consumption, essentially. Yeah, I mean, the the goal is to avoid this kind of thing, right? right? The, the whole right. goal of the system is to make sure that farmers are producing just the amount that is right. needed and that there is as little waste as possible. They call it just-in-time delivery or just-in-time production. Right. Oh, just just when it's yeah, very sweetly. Lovely name. Um, but then we have a scenario like this in a crisis like the pandemic, where our behavior and our mobility was so limited that these surpluses existed. Right. This was the headline. Piglets aborted. Chickens gassed as pandemic slams meat sector. Oh, la la. Well, OK, so. Talk about triggering terms that they put, you know, like Uh, and red herring too, right? Like, especially given. Then you read the article, and uh, that's you know had a completely different tone. You know, clearly someone wrote this headline to grab attention, but it's it's dramatic, right? It's so dramatic, and it's I think it's a problem because it is it is overhyping a scenario that perhaps. You know what I mean? Just for the sake of uh, clickbait or whatever else it is that, you know, the attention that they want to garner. But we, th- the message that is being sent is completely wrong. I mean, even I was one of the people I was duped into this, right? We went yeah. digging and digging to be like, what is the story with the dairy dumping? Why is this happening? Uh, and when we actually dove in to do the research and to figure out what was going on, we realized a couple of things. One, uh, what what I found was that Almost all of the stories that exist were just from a two-week period in April 2020, which is yeah. when this all started, right? And and that there's virtually nothing since, which uh, you know, which tells me, and I, th- I think you have a similar conclusion that the the supply management worked, right? It leveled yeah. itself out. The the system yeah, did I, what the system does, uh, and it and it has level it has balanced itself out. Right. Until a change happens again. And then we'll see what happens. Right. Absolutely. I mean, what happened is devastating. And I personally believe really not okay. Mm -hmm. That being said, you know, the pandemic is devastating and really not okay. I mean, I think it's understandable that there were no measures in place. The system wasn't built for it. But on the on the plus side, yeah, what I did find is you notice the articles were in that short yes. time span. And what I noticed is that the the problem did resolve itself. It all seems to have leveled off. So then, you know, the question becomes, is there anything that we could put into place? Right. Should something this dramatic happen again? Well, it's, um, 
I was curious about what the discussion, like what barriers, you know what I mean? The, the, you know, the, the people were talking about existing such that these connections between food surpluses and hungry people couldn't be made more explicitly. I was like, what is yes. it standing in the way? And it really, like, why can't we just send it all to yeah, Right. Like what's the problem here? So this, Marilla, this really reminded me of something I learned when I was working at the stop and we would receive food donations from Second Harvest and Daily Bread Food Bank, uh, because there's all this talk about how uh, we should be sending perishable food to food banks as opposed to dusty, dented cans. Yeah, no cans. Right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Stop um, sending cans. To actually, uh, to actually help these folks break out of this cycle. The trick was, is that the, the recipient organizations don't always have refrigeration space. They don't always have trucks that are refrigerated to keep food held safely, you know what I mean, to be delivered around to communities. It's these funny little logistic things that are standing right. in the room, right? And, and never mind, you know, the capacity to take on who knows how many thousands of liters right. of milk. I mean, right. that t- takes a lot of fridge Space. This is it, right? And even I, uh, I read a piece about the fact that the the packaging of dairy that would be sent to the places like institutions or stadiums or coffee shops are these like twenty liter, ten liter bags. They're not one and two liter cartons, which is what we would need for you know residential consumption. Uh, mm-hmm. And so the the pivot into the rethinking the packaging is also a system that doesn't really exist. Yeah. Uh, right. And their ability to sort of keep up to get that all together. Uh, and so, I mean, I think what the lesson is here is that this issue sort of sits at the intersection uh, between incredibly perishable product and a system's capacity to manage a pivot like this. Right. Yeah, it's interesting because as you're talking, it's occurring to me that the the system's strength is also its weakness in Indeed. the sense that. The system is designed so that farmers are just producing what is needed right. and it's nice and level. So whereas if they were in a system where they frequently had excess product, right. they might have a couple of different ideas right, of where to right, send right. it. You know what I mean? Because yep. I do know for sure that farmers already, um, milk farmers already send milk to food banks. Yes, yes, yes. Quite regularly. It's something that they do. So it would be natural that their first thought when there was excess was, is there any way that I can just send this all to Mm -hmm. the food bank? But if they had, you know, excess more excess product more frequently and had to think of other ways to dispose, maybe they would have had other, you know, like maybe our, our friends over at Vodkow, you know, let's turn it all into vodka. Oh, Who knows? Our friends <laughs> right? um, I, you know, I don't know who else could make use of yeah. uh, that milk or that meat or, you know, whatever it was, but that just occurred to me now that, you know, that's part of the problem there is they're so used to ha- always having that one place to send it, that there's exactly. there was nowhere else to and mm. and that this was enough of an unprecedented crisis or disaster yeah. right this this was one of those never anticipated once in a lifetime kind of things that has happened to disturb this process yeah but let's go i wanted to go back to yeah. that headline that i read earlier that scary headline mm-hmm. because this is something that both you and i noticed about this whole situation mm. is that 
in those early days when this was happening, there was a lot of dramatization of what was going on yes. and a lot of just pointing the fingers at the farmers. Right. And again, our good friend Sylvain, mm-hmm. Charlebois, Dr. Charlebois, wrote a very interesting piece you know, that, that pointed me to this whole idea of the management That's system right. and the fact that it's actually not necessarily the farmer's fault that yes. this happened. COVID has, you know, impacted us all. I would think it would be, yeah. I'd be hard pressed to find a person who didn't have some kind of, um, and I'm talking about just m- both in terms of our moral state, right. uh, or right. our morale, not our moral. That's my French coming out there, uh, our morale and our mental health. Right. Yes. Um, but, you know, struggling with, you know, less work than usual mm-hmm. or, you know, having to, to juggle children at home and work or uh, having to lay off a bunch of people is one thing. But I imagine that having to deal with having killed a bunch of animals, yeah. I'm sorry, that's that's got to that's got to take a toll. I cannot imagine that someone could could do that and not have any feelings yeah. about it. It's true. It's really true. And I, uh, I read a piece that was a sort of first person account from a farmer in Southern Ontario describing, you know, what the process was for him and, you know, his farm to decide to dump, a, you know, many, many liters of dairy. And every other line was that we hate doing this. This is horrible. This is, you know what I mean? This is never a thing that we want to do. Something that I thought was really fascinating in in the investigation of the supply management piece was uh, that the, the idea of supply management, right? There's sort of like a three-pronged focus around quotas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, minimum pricing, and then high tariffs on imports, right? Is sort of the structure around that, right? And when you look at those things sort of objectively, they, they all make good sense, right? And there's yeah. a way that they're all really sensible, thoughtful values because quotas will Well, supports give, local industry. Uh, exactly, right? Give farmers a seat at the table, uh, guarantee some minimum income for farmers, and then rightly protects the market, right? Mm-hmm. With, with the tariffs on imports. Um, but, but what we're seeing right now is that the attitude that sort of breathes life into these structures is what can distort things right because it like from uh, from a capitalist perspective um the idea these the the uh, quotas and minimum pricing is restrictive right because it clips the wings of the free market uh right and this donald trump had a problem with the high tariffs on dairy oh did he uh, yeah he had a major uh, problem all right cuz he wants the us because milk he to wants come in us yeah. access to the i don't the want Canadian that us market. milk i do no, not thank want you. that us milk who knows either. what they're putting in it <laughs> exactly no <laughs> exactly um but truthfully uh, the idea of high tariffs is actually is actually a really strong food sovereignty piece, right? Yeah. We should be protecting our supply for our people here in this country, right? That makes a lot of good sense to me. And this, I mean, this is the work that I do in just really pushing thinking to 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 identify the fact that we need values, we need thoughtful values behind our programs and the decisions we make, or at least values other than. Uh, making as big a pile of money as possible. The 
The other topic that really leapt out at us, of course, in the context of agriculture is this story with the migrant workers, right? Right. Which I'm sure our listeners will have read about. In this context, we're talking specifically about workers who come here from other countries, usually in the spring for an extended period of time to help out on Mm -hmm. farms. And there was a lot of back and forth, I remember, because it it coincided pretty much with the beginnings of COVID. And we shut down all the borders. And we even covered it on Hot Plate, I remember, because these workers weren't able to cross because the borders were closed. And then there was a whole conversation about should should we let them in? Should we not let them in? And uh, in the Mm -hmm. end, it was decided that they would be let in. And then there were all kinds of stories about the working conditions and then, you know, the number of people who got COVID. It was dramatically higher than in the rest of the population for various reasons. And it's, you know, an interesting story because I remember a lot of articles back then, and a year has passed now, and of course the season is upon mm. us uh, again this year. Again, yes. And it's interesting because the government, both governments, the provincial governments and the federal governments, have really spent a lot of time and energy on this particular issue. And they have. So it's interesting both to talk about what was happening and what has been done. And we'll have to see now with this year if there's any improvement in the situation. But as far as I'm concerned, yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't know if the regulations are are pointing in the right direction. I will, I, I will agree with you. It seems really reactionary, right? Because the 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 bulk of the regulations that we see seem to be around like on site inspection. Yeah. Right. And, and what, what they're looking for proper documentation of things like negative COVID tests and vaccine, uh, you know, having received a vaccine or, you know, or isolation details or something like that is what they're looking for. But when I heard that, Mirella, I thought to myself, well, by the time the worker gets to the farm, isn't this too late? Yep. Right. Isn't, isn't the point about intercepting or at least uh, having something at the airport and a, a different plan? Uh, we're hearing all lots of stories about how travel to another country now involves a mandatory 14 day quarantine on arrival. Right. And the hotels are being repurposed for this housing effort and all this kind of stuff. Um, but it does not seem when when I did a little bit of digging, it does not seem as though. The, the the plan around things like a mandatory quarantine for um that is paid for by the government for migrant workers is in fact the plan there's there seems to be a curious lot of exceptions to this the TFWs temporary foreign workers is the way they are classified right which has has me pretty confused about the scenario that's actually interesting that you should say that because I think I I alluded to it earlier, and it's important to note both the federal and the provincial governments are tackling this, right? So there's two right. completely different sets of information. There is exactly. a, a lot of different inspections and regulations going on. As far as I know, the federal government has put in a lot of money for the initial quarantine okay. of these people. Okay. Uh, and the provincial government, again, 
it's all a mess. So we're probably missing some pieces. Mm -hmm. But where they seem to be really focused is on protecting the workers by introducing more technology. So seeing if there's any of this work, because, you know, we're talking about things like pruning, picking, things that mm -hmm. traditionally mm -hmm. Uh, are easy, more easily done by hand and that maybe now there are some technologies that can be adopted or that can be mechanized to minimize the, the need for, for, uh, for, for humans the human, right. to do this work. But here's the issue. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how much you mechanize, there's always going to be in some area where there is a need for a human to do the job. Right. And exactly. this seems to be putting the focus in the wrong it's like okay we're just gonna make it the we're gonna create less need for these foreign workers to come in but that doesn't address the foreign workers who still will have to come who in. who are here exactly right? exactly and the quote that i read that uh it's not a quote but the the idea that i came across in an article that really encapsulated the problem for me here with all of these legislatures and with just the general attitude that's been taken is that the argument for bringing in these temporary workers was we mm -hmm. need to protect our food chain. If they don't come in, right. we won't have food. And then right. the argument for closing the border and not letting them in was we need to protect ourselves because they might bring in COVID. That's right. So they will arrive with the COVID. The, the right. argument on both sides is about us. <laughs> right. At no point. Right. It's about and our needs. Yeah. These people who, at this stage, are making the choice between staying home and not getting an income, or coming here and risking right. their yeah. health for, you know, so that we can eat. You know exactly. This they're they're the ones who are really risking, either way. Yes. And so how we think we've turned this whole conversation about us is uh, uh, it's just baffling to me. It's in, it's insane, and it like it connects a little bit to our to our previous conversation about just not understanding the human impact. You know, this is not just a means to an end for getting product. Right. This is these real live human people who are coming here to do this work, um, you know, so that we can all have food. Yeah. Uh, like and what is their like, what is the what are their circumstances? How do we set this up so that they are as safe as they can be to do this incredibly important work? Uh, I, I agree with you. I noted there was there seemed to be a real lack of understanding that these are human people yeah. <laughs> that we are talking about, right? And that these people's lives, as opposed to just whether I can get the strawberries or the tomatoes when I want them, or you know what I mean, or what our what our what our infection rates are. It's 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 more than that. We have to think more about who these folks are, and 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 then obviously that leads us into a bigger conversation about what is this system. So that this is directly related to what the farmer can sell their products for, right? Because the margins are so thin. Well, that's it exactly. And that reminds me of this quote I heard from Sylvain Charlebois, our dear friend, the food professor uh, on the East Coast. And he talks about this social contract that exists between consumers and the food industry. Uh, and essentially what he's talking about is the fact that the industry's architecture really focuses on what consumers have wanted for decades, which is cheap food. 
Uh, and essentially what he what he's sort of highlighting for us is the fact that we have the food industry that we deserve. Right. We've right. chosen this because it is so driven by our buying choices uh, at and the store. We just see what we see in the grocery store and it's not necessarily connected to, you know, all of the people behind it who need to get paid. For the and the full cost of production. Exactly. You know, I think that's a great point, but I'm not I'm not sure the solution is for to make food more expensive. <laughs> No, I'm I'm not sure either. It it's it we go there, the conversation goes there often, really talking about how we don't spend enough money on food, uh, and that we real as the consumer, we need to have more awareness of what it costs um to you know to actually produce really good food. And obviously that's a gi- a bigger conversation. We understand um that it's not just like their policy issues and their much broader uh, government focused uh you know decisions and changes that need to be made. Um and Later on this season, we're going to talk about the individual impact of this. And and from a food security perspective, uh, how much people pay for their food, we'll bring that back up because there's a fuller, rounder conversation there. COVID has had a very real impact here, right? It's drawn a lot of attention to temporary foreign workers. The initiatives might be a little bit messy and there's confusion between the the federal and provincial levels. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at least we're having this conversation and at least there is some movement there. And I think that's a great thing. All right, Mirella, so tell me, what have we learned here? I think the main thing we've learned is that it's it's really convenient for us to be removed from mm. where our food comes from and how it is produced. And certainly in the dairy dumping chat that we had, it's became so clear that the media really promotes that detachment. And right. we are really missing the human element of, you know, what these farmers are really going through and what their day to day is like. It's so easy to see the, to look at the, what's happening and to Mm -hmm. to point to that without really taking into consideration that human element. Okay. I love that. So dear listeners, we have a call to action for you. uh, And that is to really think about, this is one small thing that you can do to really help make a difference here. uh, And that is when you go to the farmer's market, uh, get to know the person behind the table. First, I guess the the, the solution is one, go to the farmer's market uh, and really <laughs> rethink your buying strategies. And then when you're there, realize uh, the access that you have to this person. You know, usually they're the people with the dirty fingernails uh, and the tired eyes uh, who have been working really, really hard to produce your food. Ask them more about the weather, about crops, about how, you know, how the season and the harvest is going. Uh, and when you get a little bit of insight into what their lives and their work is like, you may start to have a very different idea about your food and where it comes from and its value um, and how this whole system works. If you are enjoying our podcast, please support us at patreon.com slash hotplatepod. Hotplate is part of the Frequency Podcast Network. Please consider leaving us a rating or review. It helps others find us. You can follow us on Instagram at hotplatepod. Follow me at Virology on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And follow Joshna at Joshna Maharaj on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Hot Plate is produced by Mirella Amato, that's me, and Dennis Coyne. Original music by her brother. Thanks for listening.